All right, welcome everybody back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, I am Brandon Odo, and we have a very special episode for you today. Uh, we're not going to go through a case or a scenario. We are currently in the middle of a, a worldwide pandemic of COVID-19, the, the novel coronavirus, and frankly, we're having a hard time thinking about too much else. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Uh, and as always, I'm glad to have with me Brian Bowling. Hey, Brandon. So yeah, so we're kind of setting aside the normal routine today. This is an episode, I got to say, um, I've not been excited about recording uh, because there's a lot of stuff about this that's pretty terrifying. And we're going to try to cut through some of that. We're going to try to talk a little bit about the disease um, what we've seen so far in the world, maybe some thoughts on taking care of these patients, uh, but also thoughts on preventing spread, epidemiology. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about some psychology stuff too, a little bit of soft science maybe, but uh, just how to focus on what you need to focus on without driving yourself crazy, how to take care of yourself if you're a healthcare provider, etc. cetera. Um, I want to emphasize real quick, this is probably, I've been in healthcare for almost 20 years now in one form or another, this is probably the most dynamic situation I've ever encountered. I mean, stuff is changing literally minute to minute. So we're recording this on Friday, March the 13th, 2020. Um, we're hoping to get this on the air today. Uh, but some of the stuff we say, I mean, could be out of date before it even goes live. Um, so please continue to consult experts. And again, nothing we say should be construed as medical advice. This is just uh, two guys trying to do the best they can with what they've got. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's just very little that's known definitively, no matter who you are. A lot of what we're going to talk about, other than our own opinions, is what we've been able to kind of summarize and synthesize from these various streams of information. A lot of it really in these kind of novel media like social media and Twitter and emails and just firsthand reports from the clinicians that are seeing a lot of this. And in a year or two, we're probably going to find a lot of this is incorrect or distorted, but it's what we have so far. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is a rapidly, rapidly changing area. Um, so so um, I, I think the place to start is maybe some sense of the scope of this and what's happening in the world. And... Again, data are pretty preliminary, but it, it seems like many people agree that this is similar to the seasonal influenza virus and a lot of these other viruses we've seen like SARS and H1N1 in that um, it's a respiratory infection with some similarities to the flu, but it's just much, much more contagious and has no real antigenic similarity to these previous bugs. So no one's immune. And most people feel like at some point, uh, maybe between 40 and 60% of the world's population will end up infected. The spread in areas that have not really taken aggressive measures to isolate it seems to be pretty consistently at a rate of about a factor of 10 every six to seven days. So if you have 10 cases in a region, about a week later, you're going to have around 100. And then another week, you'll have about 1,000, which is, of course, a logarithmic spread. Um, this is very heavily confounded by how much you're testing for it, right? So if you're doing a ton of testing, you're going to diagnose more cases, although not necessarily more critically ill patients. And if you're under testing, and uh, the United States, for instance, is doing very little testing, there's probably a great many cases you're not seeing. And then... 
a number of those may be asymptomatic or minimally so. Um, many will have kind of flu-like symptoms. And perhaps in the order of 10%-ish will end up more severely sick and really need hospitalization. And a significant portion of those will need the ICU and mechanical ventilation and more aggressive support. And then when you've kind of stacked it all up, and we, you know, many of these people have not yet reached this stage, but somewhere between maybe half a percent and about 4% of these patients will end up dying. And this varies heavily by age. Uh, the majority of the deaths will be over 70 and especially over the age of 80. But, and this again differs maybe from influenza, you would be really shocked to hear about a young healthy patient dying from influenza. But there are clearly patients who are 30 years old with no real comorbidities who are dying from this. So nobody is immune. And the other variable uh, is the region, and it seems clear that if you have exhausted your resources in your region or your hospital, the mortality is going to go up, and that probably makes sense. Yeah, so I think it's important to talk for a second. So I think most of the people that listen to our podcast are medical professionals, right, and critical care professionals, uh, but a lot of you know people in your lives who are not, who don't understand this stuff. Uh, and their reactions are going to be widely varied from the people who think this is all overreaction to the people who are terrified. And I think it's important to try and explain to the people in our lives who are, who don't know this stuff, who don't do this stuff all the time, uh, exactly why we're doing what we're doing. And Brandon mentioned containment. Um, and that is a huge, huge thing. Um, the social isolation stuff that we're talking about, um, to, to contain the spread, um, I think it's going to keep our case numbers down. Yeah, and I, I think that is almost the most important thing because we're, we've been trying to prepare in the healthcare setting, but the numbers are, are so voluminous here that it's almost impossible to do if we get overwhelmed. Just to give you some sense for the burden, we have maybe 320 million or so people in the United States. If 10% of those require the hospital, that would be 32 million people. And you know, all potentially at the same time or close to it if there's just no control. Even in just my area here, the greater Hartford area in Connecticut, is about 1.2 million people. And that's far from the largest metropolitan area in the country. 10% of those would be 121,000 people needing a hospital admission. And, you know, a significant number of those needing the ICU. I mean, forget about it. Most ICUs are already full most of the time. So if we can't start to spread the number of admissions out over a much longer period of time, there's absolutely no chance that we can keep up from, you know, the inpatient perspective. Yeah, and let's don't forget that the rest of the world isn't going to stop because of COVID-19, right? People are still going to have heart attacks. People are still going to have strokes. People are still going to get sepsis from other causes. So that 120,000 people that are going to need the hospital uh, from coronavirus are on top of the people that are already in the hospital for other reasons. So I think you can see why we're worried about overwhelming the system and how quickly that could happen. Yeah, and that's why, and there's been a lot of talk about this online, but it seems to be percolating out into the community to varying degrees. The most important thing is going to be people not spreading this too quickly. So basic measures like not uh, spending too much time with other people, frankly, and when you are trying to kind of isolate yourself from them, not a lot of handshaking and cheek kisses, you know, staying out of large groups, doing a lot of hand washing, 
sanitizing your hands, wiping things down, that sort of thing. I myself have already had two uh, planned trips that have been canceled. Um, the majority of medical conferences in the country have now been canceled, so particularly the healthcare providers don't start spreading this around. Um, but you can imagine how you know a single person getting to a large group of people can you know infect you know many hundreds, and that's how you get these logarithmic spreads. If we could just slow this down enough, we may have a chance of keeping up with it. Right, and uh, yeah, I I've already had. I was supposed to take a group of students to a conference um, in May, actually. Uh, that's been canceled. Uh, I, my family and I were supposed to go to Disney World in a couple of weeks. Disney World is closed. You know this is serious business when places like Disney World are closing, when they're canceling an NCAA tournament. Um, for people that think this is not a big deal, this is overreacting, uh, these are people who, uh, who do this for a living who understand the millions, if not billions, of dollars they're going to lose, uh, and they're not making these decisions lightly. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's, it's not like it's easy to say, don't do things, cancel events. Uh, I mean, these, these have real impacts. My, my sister is supposed to be married next weekend, and it was just canceled. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if people are not willing to make these decisions— then I think in a, a few weeks it's going to become much more clear that they regret it. And because of this kind of logarithmic pattern, um, you know, every day that you kind of drag your feet on these measures, the the impact really magnifies. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of the natural history, kind of clinical course of these. But what happens to these patients? Like Brandon said, uh, it's a respiratory virus, right? You get a lot of symptoms that are very similar to what we would see with seasonal flu. Um, it tends to be more of a dry cough, shortness of breath, and fever without the associated um, kind of runny nose, sniffle type feeling type stuff that you get with seasonal allergies or the flu. Um, what else are we seeing? Brandon, I know you've done a lot of looking into um, sort of more advanced progression of the disease. What what sort of things should clinic, should critical care providers be looking for? Yeah, you know, again, this is all based on just on the ground experience. But yeah, it seems like a, you know a dry cough. That kind of thing is very common. Um, fever, quite common, but not always initially. A lot, maybe as much as half of these patients when they get to the hospital do not have a fever, which is pretty important because a lot of us are using fever as a screen. Mm -hmm. um, many of them will develop one at some point. Sometimes a mild one though. Um, like you said, not so much of the kind of coryza, nasal congestion, things like that. But the pattern seems to be perhaps minimal symptoms initially, and then a, a good five, six days until you start to develop worsening respiratory symptoms. If you do, of course, many remain mild. But the ones who are going to end up in our ICU, there's this kind of biphasic course where that, that starts as much as a week later. And then many people have described at that point, it can progress very quickly. So you, you come in in the morning and you uh, are on nasal cannula, and then by the evening uh, you're on high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP or something, and then by the next morning you're intubated and proned. So very kind of potentially fulminant respiratory failure. Um, people are seeing, uh, many of them, relatively mild elevations in liver enzymes um, and kind of varying degrees of some renal failure. Some do require dialysis. Some mixed reports on how many of these patients are in shock. So do they have this septic picture or is it isolated respiratory failure? And it seems to be mixed. Many of them are not hypotensive. Some are. Um, the most important kind of non-respiratory picture, I think, is in it, people are reporting this as fairly delayed. In some cases, actually after the patient's respiratory status has improved. 
you start to get better and then they develop essentially a cardiogenic shock and just multi-organ failure and uh, many signs of um, a really pump failure. So, you know, ejection fractions of 10%, um, you know, peripherally vasoconstricted. And many of these patients end up coding really for that reason. Um, now, Brandon, with the with this cardiogenic shock, are we, are we talking like a stress cardiomyopathy that we see with a lot of other types of critical illness, or is this something different altogether? You know, I, I think it's not clear. You know, the troponins are elevated. Um, I haven't heard described that kind of classic Takasuba pattern with this kind of apical hypokinesis. I think it sounds like it's more diffuse. So I, my feeling is that it may be more of a like a viral myocarditis. And I think there, that is somewhat consistent with these reports in the past from things like SARS. But, of course, it's all not very clear. There does sound like there is a, um, a fairly high propensity for arrhythmias in these patients. Um, and, you know, potentially these are people who could go on mechanical support. But, of course, this is all not clear. And then, you know, maybe by 19 or 20 days, most of these patients are done. So either they've died or they've gotten better and around this time or maybe a few more days you st you no longer shed virus is there anything that you've seen in terms of prediction uh as you know anything that we can look at to say we feel like this is going to be the person who gets better this is the going to be the person who doesn't get better are there trends with that sort of thing yeah um Clearly, age is prognostically important. Again, if you're over 70 or certainly over 80 and more comorbidities, those patients do a lot worse. Reportedly, places like Italy that are really overwhelmed, they're just flat-out triaging people. And if you're old enough or sick enough at baseline, you're, they're not offering a lot of aggressive life support because they just don't have enough. Right. Um, a lot of other comorbidities, you know, the usual ones seem to matter. Hypertension seems to particularly be a risk factor, and that's theorized that one of the receptors this virus binds to is the, the ACE receptor. And so either hypertension alone or in perhaps uh, treatment with things like ACE inhibitors and ARBs may be a risk, although how that actually works is not clear. Um, you know, people have suggested that if your PO2 is less than maybe 60 when you come in, that may be a bad sign. I think it's clear because of that course I described that if you're actually having respiratory symptoms, like you're truly short of breath or hypoxic, that's not great. And you should probably be watched closely because a lot of those will proceed very quickly to respiratory failure. If it's just those early symptoms like fever or cough, then maybe you have some time to wait. Maybe you can go home and so on. Yeah, well, and let's emphasize too, you know, you talked about sort of the insidious nature of onset. Um, you know, that's sort of in the epidemiology world, that's sort of a perfect storm kind of situation for spread. Right. One of the reasons that some of the really nasty bugs, the hemorrhagic fevers and stuff like Ebola, uh, don't really run wildfire through the world is they tend to kill the host pretty quickly, right, before they can spread. Um, something like this, where you can walk around asymptomatic for a week or more shedding virus, um, is one of the reasons why this social distancing and isolation is so important, right? Because you may not even know you have it. Uh, and you go to a basketball game or something and are infecting people uh, before you even become symptomatic. Right. And the fact that many patients will not be so sick, or at least not early on, is good for them. But it's sort right. of bad for the population because that means they're spreading more. And if any significant percentage of them ends up seriously ill, then that's just a higher number that ends up in the ICU. Right. Exactly. Shall we talk a little bit about trying to make this diagnosis? Yeah. So right now, the testing is pretty inadequate in the United States, right? The, the availability of testing is pretty low. Um, so I think by and large, from what I'm reading, uh, the diagnosis is being made 
by uh, by symptoms and just a clinical diagnosis. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. And again, I think this is rapidly changing. Hopefully it'll improve. But the, the definitive test is a, a viral PCR. And I, what they're telling us, at least, and this is, again, changing, but um, you take a, a nasopharyngeal swab and an oropharyngeal swab. And if they're intubated, uh, that second part is not clear. Maybe you do the oropharynx around the tube, or maybe you get like a sputum sample, which maybe is more definitive. But you put them both in the same uh, viral medium. And for us, it goes to the state to be tested. And the turnaround time on that is about 24 hours. Is it something similar for you guys? Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know exactly. I know we're the only uh, facility in the area that is testing right now. Or I say right now, that's as of the last time I talked to anyone a day or two ago. That may have, been, may have changed. Um, I do know I read um, Cleveland Clinic, I believe, has developed a test with uh, an eight-hour turnaround now. Um, so hopefully that will um, get disseminated around uh, and, and help make this diagnosis more rapidly. Uh, but yeah, this is something that, for the most part, people are not testing uh, locally for. Yeah, and I think that needs to change because that turnaround time is going to be really important to the, the yeah. patient flow. Um, there are t- is talk that you know you may get false negatives, especially early on, which of course can be its own problem. Um, but yeah, you have to be kind of empiric in how you manage these folks. So how does it look kind of a, from a clinical perspective? It looks like a, a sort of interstitial or viral pneumonia. And if you were able to get a CT, then you have the characteristic findings there of a sort of more diffuse ground glass appearance. Chest x-rays can be very hit or miss. You know, as we know, chest x-rays miss a lot in the ICU. Um, what else? Uh, a procalcitonin, if you send that, it sounds like pretty reliably is low or negative. And I think that can be useful, especially to do early on. Because, of course, you can still develop a secondary bacterial infection later. Um, but I think my feeling is I would send those on a lot of these patients. Not all, but many of these people have a, a, a lymphopenia, if not an overall leukopenia. I mean, that's pretty typical for um, maybe viral infections, but not so common for other bacterial ones, right? So that may help define the disease. Sure. Many patients seem to have an elevated CRP, which of course is very nonspecific. Um, people are talking about using ultrasound maybe as an adjunct to CT, which may have a role for some people. And then um, I think there's a point where when the burden of disease gets high enough in the community, uh, a lot of these people like uh, in Italy who have seen a lot of it say it's not hard to make the diagnosis because it's no longer a zebra. This is just what everyone has. It's almost harder to make the, the undiagnosis and diagnose the things that are not the virus. Because, of course, as you said, we still have aspiration pneumonias and right. UTIs and things like that. Right. Are you seeing, uh, are you seeing some of that uh, where you are? People who... Um, people who think maybe this is coronavirus when in fact not only is it not but it really isn't even likely to be I would say that's most of what we've seen so far. We haven't had a, a true positive case yet, but because of our the screening criteria, and that really is you either have these fever and respiratory symptoms and you've had a direct contact or you've traveled to one of these endemic areas, um, or you have such symptoms and you have just flat-out respiratory failure. So if you require the ICU for you know hypoxia, um, then we're testing. And of course, that describes most of our respiratory patients who have pneumonias and things like that. So we've, we've seen a lot of those. But at some point, those are going to start being positive. <laughs> right. I, I don't know it's going to be really clear that you know, the patients who come in as true positives will look much different. And that's the point of this fairly broad screening, I think. I think the question that gets raised when we start talking about these numbers is, how do we manage the, the resource side of this? And we talked about how you know, potentially the numbers of these patients are going to 
radically exceed what we have the ability to manage. And that can you know, manifest in a lot of ways. Um, you, know, you can run out of rooms, you can run out of staff, you can run out of equipment like ventilators. Uh, and what do you do about those? And I, I don't really have a lot of answers, but I think we should at least think about it. Um, and an example would be, you know, if your ICU was full, as many are, and you start to get a lot of these admissions, where do you put them? Now, there's, I think, some flexibility in your baseline admissions. You can cancel elective surgeries. We all know that there are many kind of soft admissions sometimes in the ICU, and you can try to bump them out of there. Um, but still, what happens when you fill up those beds, too? Do you start to put patients elsewhere outside of the ICU, maybe turn non-ICU beds into ICU ones? Do you um, start putting them in totally novel areas like in tents or in the hallways? I think that will start to challenge the isolation part of it. Um, but I, I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, talking about resources too, you're talking about staff, right? So um, the nurses in the ICU are trained to take care of critically ill patients. Nurses who work outside the ICU aren't necessarily. Uh, physicians even and, and, and uh, APPs like, like us. Uh, those of us who work in the ICU, and I think we forget this sometimes, those of us who work in the ICU, when we talk to colleagues who have never done critical care, uh, it's surprising to us sometimes at, at how different our worlds are. You know, so, so what do you do when you don't have enough critical care staff to go around? Do you, do you have non-critical care staff managing these patients? Do you try to, try to train up people? Uh, I'm not sure I can give a crash course in how to manage an ICU patient effectively in five minutes. I think you, I think you try to mitigate that by using your extra staff um, intelligently. So maybe your sickest patients are still managed by the ICU staff, but um, the more kind of convalescing or mild ones, maybe you have the, the regular inpatient hospitalist and internal medicine sorts of teams taking care of. And the patients who would have just been on the floors and who are not that sick to begin with, you have maybe like outpatient providers taken care of. You kind of try to triage all that. But yeah, you, you probably do need to have some process for training everyone, at least to recognize when their patient is getting sicker. How would you do about that? And how do you call for help? Sure. And I want to make sure that we just just say this uh, out loud to be on the record. When, we, when we're talking about triaging to different providers, Please understand, we are not in any way denigrating uh, our colleagues who don't work in the ICU. Um, they have a different skill set than us. Uh, my friends who work in the clinic do stuff every day that I just don't have that skill set. So, so we're not saying that we're better uh, than any of these other people. This is just a specialty area that we've trained for that they haven't. Uh, and then there's there's areas that they've trained for that we haven't too. So oh yeah, I mean you you couldn't train me to to run a you know a endocrinology clinic no in any no way of reasonable time yeah no way what else are you gonna run out of uh, some of these hospitals are reportedly running out of oxygen which we treat like it's a you know a infinite resource but it's not it comes from a, a liquid oxygen supply centralized to the hospital right and if you have a ton of people with hypoxia on a range of support from nasal cannulas all the way to ventilators um, it can be exhausted and what do you do then I mean that's a supply line thing I think and you try sure. to mitigate how much you're wasting maybe you don't use as much of things like high flow nasal cannula that use a whole lot of oxygen um, and then what about uh, you know hardware equipment ventilators for instance you yeah. know, how many ventilators does your hospital have if you have a lot of mechanically ventilated patients can you exhaust that 
what do you do if you do? Um, I think there's kind of a, a spectrum of things you can try. You can try to get more in. Maybe some of the vendors have rentals or demo machines you can use. Um, you can pull in anesthesia machines, machines which um, of course can ventilate patients, although most of us are not familiar w- with their use unless we have an anesthesia background. There is reportedly government stockpiles for disasters, a strategic national stockpiles, which include basic ventilators. What else? You could put two patients on the same ventilator. That's been reported in the past, and some people are reviving the idea. You put a Y in the circuit, um, and you put them on volume control and double the volumes. Yeah. There was just a video the other day. Someone put four test lungs on the same ventilator. I think a lot of questions to be answered there, but sure. the extremists maybe could be done. You probably have to paralyze them because you wouldn't have any synchrony. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, so the, the part of the problem there is, right, you have to, you can't custom customize your settings to the patient, right? Uh, but, again, you're going to get, you're getting back into isolation problems. Now you're putting two people in the same in the same room, essentially. Yeah. Uh, now, theoretically, they both have the same virus, but that doesn't necessarily um, that doesn't necessarily help contain potentially other things that they have. And there could be multiple strains, of course, where that's not as clear yet. I know several years ago during the H one N one epidemic pandemic, I guess is, it was officially a pandemic. Uh, I worked as a charge nurse in the CTICU, and we were the region's repository for ECMO. Uh, and I had uh, I had one night I had. 14 patients on ECMO um, and we had to go get machines from other places. We had to get them from the manufacturers and things like that. So, um, so, so some of these issues we've sort of dealt with before, I think the big difference here is the scale, right? Um, Because if every hospital in the country is running out of ventilators, then I don't know that there is a backup supply to go to, right? It's not a matter of distributing them. There's just not enough. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think that may become real. You know, and what do you do then? You Maybe you um, you can always hand bag patients, which is not at all desirable, I think, for these true, severe, you know, ARDS patients. It's one thing if you have a, a ward of polio patients who are just hypoventilatory, but these patients on high peeps and things. But maybe you do. You know, you get family members to help squeeze a bag, put a peep valve on it, you know, in extremis. Maybe that's what you do. That sounds crazy to suggest, but, uh, you know, I, I have friends who have done work in remote hospitals in Africa where they only have power 12 hours a day. And that's what they do is overnight family members or staff hand bag patients. Um, and it's far from ideal. But like you said, in, in, if we're completely out of options and our backs against the wall. You know, there are um, kind of cheap little disposable ventilators, uh, the old birds, uh, Vortran, um, which might be have a role, but of course, you may or may not have them. Uh, some of them also use a lot of oxygen, which of course, can you, you can run out of as well. Um, if you don't have BiPAP, you could try doing BiPAP through your ventilators. Uh, or if you don't have ventilators, you could try to use a ventilator as BiPAP. Either way, <laughs> you could hook up a regular BiPAP machine to an endotracheal tube in principle. Um, what else? I mean, you could just reduce your frequency of changing things like circuits and HMEs. Um, you could try to clean or re-sterilize your circuits if you're running out of those. Uh, you know, there's, there's potential options, but I think it behooves to think about it ahead of time if you can. Well, and let's throw this into the mix too. When we talk about running out of supplies, a lot of us have already kind of been dealing with shortages of supplies. Uh, you know, I don't know about where you are, but we're constantly running up against drug shortages or, uh, you know, a few months back we had a shortage of empty IV bags. We were, the pharmacy was having a trouble making custom drips uh, because we just didn't have the empty IV bags. Uh, and a lot of that is the result of 
uh, you know, disasters like the hurricane in Puerto Rico that are knocking out manufacturing facilities and so forth. But so there's, again, going back to, like we said, with the, the patients themselves, there's baseline shortages that are going to be added to the mix. Yeah. And we try to manage them and generally we do, but it generally takes time. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you work it out over a month or two, but things are happening so quickly now that there may not be time for all that. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, going along with resource shortages is a question of how you make these resources available again. The way you manage that is you get patients out of there. Right. And right. that's always been true. We run out of beds and things and we get move, patients moving. But how that's going to work, I think it's not so clear. I mean, I think the, at least for us, the starting flow is you have a suspicion for a patient having this virus in the ER. Uh, they get empirically isolated. They get swabbed. Um, you admit them to somewhere. And, and right now, that's pretty much the ICU for us. Uh, or maybe if they go to the floor, then they get sicker and they go to the ICU later. But the test comes back and they get either cleared or they're positive and then you manage them as you would. Uh, I don't know if that flow is going to work if you have too many of these patients. First of all, the if the turnaround stays a day, then that's a full day of many patients who don't need to be isolated filling up your resources, one of which is airborne isolation rooms, which are in very short supply for us and I imagine for most people. Yeah. Maybe one of the solutions there is you stop using airborne isolation, which is more out of a sort of abundance of caution than a real suspicion that this is an airborne virus. It seems like it's more a droplet, but... Um, but I don't know how you really streamline this. Uh, it was just pointed out on, on Twitter that uh, you might not be able to discharge a lot of these patients. Can they go back to if they came from a facility or from a rehab or from jail or something? Will they take back a, a COVID-positive patient? I think in many cases, no. So you may need some novel approaches to this, like keeping people out of the hospital altogether, doing you know, screening in tents or drive-through clinics or things like that, keeping them home if you can. Uh, the ICU, of course, will always be the ICU, but you need to really try to limit it to truly critically ill patients. Uh, you know, the floor is taking lower acuity ones and anyone who could not be in the hospital staying out of the hospital. Yeah. And, you know, so we're seeing some of that in places like South Korea. They're doing a lot of these drive by clinics and pop up clinics where they're testing people uh, and keeping them out of the ED. Right. Um, the ED is a race resource that's pretty much overwhelmed or teetering on the brink of being overwhelmed on any given day of the week, uh, you throw in a bunch of people who might have a cough and they think I need to get tested showing up and the ED is going to be overwhelmed pretty rapidly. So I think your idea of doing, you know, these kind of remote pop-up clinics, uh, tent clinics, drive-through clinics uh, is a good idea just to weed out the people who can be treated at home, whether they're they don't have the virus or whether they are mildly symptomatic and can be treated at home versus the people who need to be admitted. Um, not only is it freeing up beds in the hospital, but it's freeing up resources in places like the ED and clinics. Yeah. And it's hopefully keeping people out of these large groups in the ER and potentially infecting each other. Cause you talk right. about groups to stay out of. That's a great one. Right. Uh, which raises the question of, of isolation. And, and we talked about, uh, precautions the, the recommendations right now are airborne precautions plus contact precautions plus eye protection, which is easy to say, but how to actually implement it, I think is not as obvious and it, it's only when you try to actually go through this and do it with the mindset of not just the kind of token observance of precautions like we use for a lot of things, like uh, you know, patient with MRSA or something, where you're just trying to kind of cut down on the degree of spread of it, but really with the sense that if you miss anything, it's probably going to affect you or somebody else. 
And it's pretty clear that we don't know how to do this. Um, so I think it's really important to train up the staff on this process. Um, there are some good videos. I'll post one here. Hopefully you're doing some in your hospital. Um, but everyone who's going to ever go into one of these patient rooms or touch one of these patients should have a good sense of this because it's no help if 95% of your staff are cautious because the 5% who are not are going to go into the room, bring out the virus and spread it around the whole unit. So exactly. unless you're going to you know, use precautions for every time you pick up a phone or touch a computer, it needs to be pretty universal. So your providers, your nursing staff, your techs, respiratory therapists, radiology techs, anyone who goes in a room should be on the same page with this. Um, and I, being similarly serious about uh, your potential fomites too, I think. Yeah. Phones, computers, anything that you touch and that goes to other staff members. The early data I've seen on this suggests that the virus is viable for around three hours in aerosol. Now, that doesn't mean that an aerosol will stay airborne for three hours. That would be very strange, but it would be viable if it did. Maybe four hours on copper, uh, up to 24 hours on cardboard, and up to two to three days on plastic or stainless steel, which is probably the most common surface we'll see. So that's certainly long enough for some serious fomite transition, although it's not forever. This is almost doubly important because not only do we not get, want to get sick, but if you start wiping out your staff, if nothing else, through self-quarantines, even if they're relatively okay, um, this resource issue gets magnified from both ends, right? I mean, you could wipe out your whole department if you pass around a dirty phone or something for a few days. Yeah, very easily. So you had mentioned the being serious about, right? And I think we, that's a good point because we have so many patients in isolation these days that we don't necessarily take it seriously, right? We maybe don't put gowns on when we go in a room that's got contact precautions. We, you know, maybe we just sort of fudge things. Uh, but I think this is something we need to be serious about. Uh, a few years back when Ebola was a big scare, uh, our hospital had a response team for that, and I was on it as a nurse. Uh, we never got a case, but we had to do regular training on how to dress out and how to how to take the PPE stuff off as well. And one of the things that we did was you had a buddy system, right? When I put my gear on, someone watched me to make sure that I didn't miss a step, that I didn't accidentally touch something and contaminate myself, to make sure that, uh, you know, my mask was on correctly or my papper was on right, um, and the same to take off the gear. And so I think it's something that we need to really emphasize. This is something that has to be taken seriously, and we should probably be pairing up and watching each other to make sure that we're not rushing through it. Yeah, and I think the Ebola is a kind of a good model. Fortunately, the you know mortality is not as high here, but in the same sense, it's you know it's essentially droplet or, or fluid spread. It's just very, very, very contagious. Um, so you know, kind of putting on, especially taking off your PPE with the mindset of like, imagine every piece of this is absolutely covered in something disgusting, some right. kind of oil or something. How are you going to get this off without getting any of it on you? And if you do, clean it off right away and not spread it to your face or things. And I, yeah, I agree. Observe each other doing it because we're still all kind of still learning how. And especially when it starts to get busy. You know, the other day we had a patient extubate themselves and the nurse kind of rushed in with just a mask or something off is that the way to go about it or do you take a couple extra minutes and you know the patient unfortunately is going to have to wait but it's kind of with a bigger picture in mind yeah i saw someone put a thing up on twitter uh yesterday i believe basically asking that question what do you do right and when we were training for the ebola response we were told what do you do you don't go in the room 
you know, and it took, I mean, now Ebola, like you said, was a sort of extreme example, but I mean, even with practice, it would take me a couple of minutes to get the gear on, you know, what do you do if that patient is arresting? And we were told very explicitly, you don't go in the room. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, one death turns into multiple. Uh, And that's, that's kind of terrifying. And especially for us as healthcare providers, right? We, we do that sort of thing all the time, right? All the time we think about other people first and put ourselves at risk. Uh, But, you know, you come from a EMS background, I think, right? And there's that whole concept of scene securement, right? The, you're not going to do anybody any good if you get killed, uh, in the process, so yeah, the example is always you know a patient's down in a, a you know a, a cloud of toxic fumes or something. You know, do you want fourteen people to rush in and then collapse on top of them? That doesn't right. add to the problem, right? Uh, yeah, and, you know, a few specific things I think people should think about are if you're carrying around um, devices like an ultrasound. Uh, I mean, those are great fomites and they're hard to clean. So you know, if you have an ultrasound, take everything off it. No supplies clean it down completely between uses every probe every cable if you had maybe some sprays that would help getting in the crannies and things mm-hmm. uh, but none of this piling on you know ivs and stuff because you're not going to clean all those um, right. if you have if you're using ventilators maybe consider using hmes instead of active humidifiers because those generate a lot of aerosol make sure you put it on standby if you disconnect the circuit otherwise every breath it's going to spray fluid into the air and really, any of these aerosol-generating procedures are going to be really high risk. Even if you get to the point where we start saying just the contact isolation and um, you know maybe surgical masks for most of these patients, if you're generating aerosols with intubation or bronchoscopy or you're going to suction somebody who's not on the vent, um, those are the times you should probably be using full airborne precautions and really doing everything you can to stay away from that because that's really when you're going to get it. Yeah. clouds of aerosol in the air. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think it's important to note, and this goes back to resource depletion, right? I work in a teaching hospital. Uh, it's not uncommon for 10 or 15 people to go in the room. Uh, that's going to deplete resources and expose more people. Um, when I was on the Ebola group, it was an attending only service. Um, the one patient that we've had at, at UK um, with coronavirus uh, I was told it was an attending only, right? No residents in the room, no, uh, no fellows in the room, no NPs in the room. Um, and that's not necessarily to, to limit training or to that you know, NPs and PAs aren't capable, um, but it was looked at as a, there are always going to be things that an APP can't do independently. There are always going to be things that a resident or a fellow can't do independently. Even if it's something that's a skill set I have, I'm not going to be as good at intubating, say, as my attending. Um, And so the idea was just the attending. And so it limits exposure, the people that are being exposed. And it also reduces the number of gowns and masks and gloves that you're using. Yeah. And those are things we may be running out of. I think that's very appropriate. Shall we talk a little bit about actually taking care of these patients? Yeah. So what are the treatment options that we have? Um, Are standard antivirals being used for these patients? I think there's two sides. One is the supportive care and one is are there some of these disease-specific things? Um, the supportive care sounds like it's fairly straightforward. These are patients with ARDS, essentially. Right. Um, they seem to respond well to high PEEP. 
Um, they seem to have generally low driving pressure, so they're actually fairly easy to ventilate once you get them recruited. They seem to respond well to prone positioning. So, you know, places that are doing a lot of proning, that sounds great. If you're not, maybe we should be brushing up on it um, because this seems to be one of the therapies that actually works. Maybe even considering proning patients who are not intubated as a way of sparing intubation and, you know, our few vents. Um, that's been talked about in the past. It's not practiced very widely, but there's no reason you can't do it. Keeping them pretty dry seems to be useful, as always with ARDS. And the role for non-invasive ventilation is not as clear. Um, high flow nasal cannula would seem like a really good choice for the patients who don't need to be intubated, but there's a concern that it can help spread the disease by aerosolizing virus with this high flow. What do you do about that? Not as clear. CPAP and BiPAP, I think we've started to see a trend away from it for two reasons. One is that um, it's probably going to be a resource that's limited, and again, it may spread the disease as well. A lot of these dedicated you know, non-invasive machines, they don't have an expiratory circuit that goes to a filter. They vent the expiratory flow to the atmosphere. So this flow is coming in and then spraying out, and that's a good way to cover the room with it. But also, it just sounds like they're not working very well. There's a very high rate of failure of patients who are put on non-invasive ventilation. I saw in one cohort, it's like 92% of them eventually needed intubation. So a lot of people are moving towards maybe just intubate very early, and maybe that helps. I think don't be afraid of sedation or even paralyzing these patients and really giving them a course of, of rest. I think we're moving away from steroids. You know, that's always been a little controversial for ARDS, but uh, largely based on data from, you know, SARS and H1N1 and those, it seems like steroids don't benefit these patients. It may worsen their outcome and it may prolong the course of, of viral shedding. So for the most part, I would avoid, I think. There's a, a couple kind of idiosyncratic phenomena, it seems like. We talked about this phenomenon of the cardiogenic shock that may develop. Uh, I would consider early mechanical support in those sorts of patients because inotropes may dispose to the arrhythmias. But of course, that's another resource that may be very limited. How many patients can you put on ECMO? Right. And there's also this these reports, which is sort of odd um, in some areas. We heard a lot of this from Iran of patients who may be severely hypoxemic, uh, but actually not look like it. They have this, I'm calling it apathetic hypoxemia. They may not be tachypnic or distressed looking. They may look calm, but, you know, with a oxygen saturation of 65% or something. Um, and maybe hypoventilating without really a apparent respiratory drive. Not clear why. Maybe there's some CNS involvement that suppresses your, your respiratory drive. But that seems like there is at least some subset of patients who show this. What do you do about that? I don't know. Maybe those are good patients for BiPAP. And then there's the question of these actual disease-specific therapies. These seem to have filtered out into three main groups. There is uh, remdesivir, which is a, a relatively recent antiviral. Originally, it was for Ebola. People have been trying it for this. Maybe some benefit. It's, um, it's being used on in a trial uh, context or for compassionate release from the company Gilead. Um, there is Kalitra, which is uh, lopinavir and ritonavir, um, old HIV med, maybe with the addition of uh, ribavirin. These are, you know, antiviral cocktails. Yeah. Um, that's an old one. And then there's chloroquine or hydrochloroquine, which is a, you know, like a malaria or like lupus kind of drug. Yeah, that's a really old drug. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's other ones that I'm talking about. It's like an inhaled a steroid. Actemra, which is tocilizumab. Um, Chinese were saying maybe for like severe disease with fibrosis, you try that. Maybe ACEs or ARBs, although again, maybe those make it worse. That's not clear at all. Right. Um, 
it was still kind of figuring this out. I guess if you're going to try something, maybe right now you do the hydrochloroquine because that's widely available and there's not too many adverse effects. But I think if you just didn't do anything, that would be very reasonable too because there's just no data on all of this yet. Yeah, and I think that's um, for folks like us who like data and like research studies and like guidelines, uh, that's one of the really kind of terrifying things about this is we just don't know. Um, we're really kind of flying blind here. So that's sort of what we know so far. Um, I think the the last important question is what do we do as people as well as as providers while we're all kind of waiting for this and then as it starts to actually hit us? Because I, I don't know about you, but um, I do not feel like I have been 100% healthy, at least mentally speaking, while we sit around waiting for this tidal wave. No, yeah. I mean, th- and this is the thing. I was talking to my kids last night about this, and they're anxious just because they're picking it up from my wife and I, right? We're anxious, and uh, we try not to talk them in front of them, but uh, they hear things at school, and, you know, it is sort of scary, Um and I think, right, what's the appropriate amount of anxiety, right? Because there's there needs to be a, um, a middle ground between this putting our head in the sand and everything's going to be okay, um, or this, you know, it's all a big hoax, it's being blown out of proportion, this is ridiculous, canceling all these events. Uh, I even saw a post on, on Twitter uh, <laughs> today that said, if we lock ourselves in our homes and don't go out, the virus wins. Um, the virus doesn't care, right? It's not, it, this is not Al-Qaeda. Uh, the virus doesn't care if we, if we do things or not. But a balance between that and the extreme of we're just panicking all the time. And I told my kids last night, we're going to worry about the things that we can, we can have some control over, right? Like washing our hands, like not going to big events, like coughing into our sleeves and not sharing water bottles and stuff with friends Uh, and the things that we don't have any control over we're going to try not to worry too much about yeah i i I guess the ideal would be to try to divorce your mental anxiety from your actual actions and preparedness because i think we should be very you know concerned and prepared for this Um, being anxious doesn't necessarily help with that. That's right. sort of a, a you thing. But that seems um, a lot easier said than done. I mean, most of us are anxious about anxiety-provoking things. And I, I don't I don't know the solution for that. Um, I, uh, Jed Wolpaw from the ACRAC podcast was just posting about meditation, which may actually be yeah, I saw that. A, a, good, a, a good choice. Um, a lot of us are not really on that train, but maybe this is the time. Yeah. Um, in a sense, I almost you kind of wish it would just come because it's the waiting that's the hard part, although we may feel differently once we actually are there. Right. I think it's important, like you said, to prepare and to plan. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that has gotten us into trouble so far is that we have sort of just said we're going to ignore it and we're not going to prepare. Um And so that's important. And I think that's actually anxiety reducing, right? I said at the top of this that I was not looking forward to this podcast. And actually, I am feeling better the more we talk about it, uh, about it, because I feel like we're talking about plans. We're we're preparing. Uh, You know, there's certain things that I don't have control over, and I'm just going to have to admit that Uh, I don't like that at all. But I think preparing and planning is part of coming to grips with that. And I think it can be anxiety reducing to a degree. 
And the one of the double-edged swords here, I think, has been this role of social media and all of these very modern avenues of communication. Uh, all of the, the traditional ways that we learn about medicine are, are way behind the curve on this because it's just happening so quickly. Yeah. Most of what we're learning has been, you know, for me, uh, Twitter has been very useful. We've been getting a lot of direct reports from clinicians. Um, the, the CCM uh, mailing list, critical care list, is yeah. over two decades old now. Um, a good email list and people are putting some good information on there. Um, these are all uh, very real-time streams of information, and that's been amazing because this is how we've learned most of this. Yeah. On the other hand, a constant stream of information, a lot of which is depressing, is is also not real good for you. Right. So, you know, it, you got to take take the good and try to leave the bad. I I think you're right that the more your kind of worry can transform into action, the better. Um, that's not always possible, of course. A lot of us are not in the position to make the preparations that may seem necessary, and maybe that's where some of the anxiety comes from. Yeah, I think it is. There's a lot of stuff that we don't have control over. Um, I don't have control over you know, the number of tests that are run. I don't have control over uh, a lot of the stuff um, in the world. But um, I think you're right. I think taking a break from social media here and there is good and healthy. It, it's good and healthy anyway. Right. But especially in times like this, uh, and then to follow that up with something that's going to seem completely counter on our Twitter this morning, I we've posted, um, a retweet from the intensive care society that mentions some ideas for well-being and self-care and things that you can be doing, um, as a, as a healthcare worker, as a critical care clinician to, look after yourself and your own mental health and well-being. Uh, so that's something to check out. I think it's important to to try and focus on some good stuff. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm, I certainly hope everybody's listening to this podcast, but I've been trying to take a break lately and listen to some stuff that's completely non-medical um, here and there, right? Like it's Like we said, it's important to be in the loop and know what's going on, uh, but it's important to sometimes just take a break and just sit down and watch Netflix and enjoy some things in your life and, and have a little bit of a mental holiday from all this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Of course, our efforts at uh, limiting our interactions are going a little bit against that, but maybe this is a good time to read a book or just spend some time by yourself. Yeah. All right, Brian, any more thoughts on this? Uh, no, I think, I think that's good. I think we've covered it appropriately. We've talked about, uh, the disease itself and what we can do and what we need to do in terms of preparation. We've talked a little bit about, uh, how scary it can be. We've talked a little bit about talking to your non-medical friends and family about why these things are important, why flattening the curve is such a big deal, why it, you know, it really is a good thing. Uh, even for those of us in the heart of basketball country, uh, that the NCAA Final Four is canceled, um, you know, things like that. And we've talked about how to take care of ourselves during this time and how to look out for our friends and family and their mental well-being as well. Um, so, yeah, I think we've I think we've pretty well covered it and we'll get back to our normal routine of critical care scenarios next time. All right. Um Again, things are changing quickly, and if there are other updates, we'll try to communicate them in some way. Uh, maybe Twitter will be the, the best real-time avenue for that. But hopefully this has been somewhat useful um, with the information we have 
so far. And we'll see you guys in a couple more weeks. We'll